at this year's 2019 Shannon's Classic, where they had over 1,900 cars from car clubs all over Australia. The winner of the Concours d'Elegance was David Burthon with his beautifully restored 1913 Rolls-Royce. We've had David on the program a number of times, and why and how much better it is to have him now with such a victory. David joins us. David, you must be very happy uh, to have won that award. Very much so, David. It was a real surprise, actually. I mean, there was some fairly stiff competition there. I uh, I must admit there are probably 50 cars there that would, would certainly, uh, I thought, have beaten me. But anyway, um, on the day, uh, everyone felt that my car was the best car there, so it was a thrill. Here's my word. Uh, yeah, there were some lovely old cars, an old Alvis, and uh, I think there was a Packard, uh, a very uh, beautiful old Packard as well. Now, your car, does that have a little bit of a racing heritage in the reason it was built? Well, it, it look, it's one of uh, 22 cars that were built by Henry Royce. What happened? A privateer, a fellow called a private customer of Rolls Royce, James Radley. Um, he was quite an, an unusual bloke. He, he was a pilot um, and uh, had his own aerodrome. Very wealthy family. He entered the Austrian Alpine trial in 1912. And uh, under the rules of the Austrian Alpine trial, if you got stuck on any of the Austrian passes, uh, you were disqualified. And what happened? He got onto the Katzberg Pass very steep gradient, and uh, the car failed to proceed uh, just through gearing. Uh, no other reason, it was just didn't have the right gearing. So Rolls-Royce decided for the 1913 event they'd build some special cars. They also had the Spanish Grand Prix coming up, and uh, the Marquis de Salamanca, who was the agent for Rolls-Royce in Spain, he needed a little bit of assistance too. Rolls-Royce also wanted to establish a new depot in Vienna, so they wanted to win the Austrian Alpine trial to give the the brand uh, a real fillip. So they built a four-speed model, and they only built 22 of them, a slightly bigger radiator, higher compression, uh, slightly larger wheels. And uh, they came first, second, and third in the Austrian Alpine trial, and they came first and third in the Spanish Grand Prix, which is the only time Rolls-Royce has ever entered a Grand Prix. In fact, it wasn't a circuit race. It was up through the mountains uh, between Portugal and Spain, over 300 kilometres, and uh, they came first and third, as I said. So uh, this is one of the six remaining of the 22 cars that were built, high-performance cars. They failed to proceed in 1912. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you are holding to the tradition of Rolls-Royce. It was a time of great adventure, wasn't it? It was where you were really close to the mechanics of a car. Oh, my word. I mean, uh, you know, James Radley was an incredible guy. I mean, he used to take bets. I think in nineteen in 1913, the day before the event, before they left uh, Vienna, someone uh, suggested he you know, could drive to Monte Carlo and back. And uh, uh, he took up the bet and he left at night time and drove by himself through the night sort of... Uh, uh, there and back and got back in time to start the rally, which was quite an arduous event anyway. But, I mean, he was, a, he was quite an adventurous sort of guy. And uh, like, like Charles Rolls, he was into ballooning, um, and he actually had his own motor body works called Port Home Motor Body Works. So very interesting guys, all those guys at that time. 
Now you've restored it. What did you have at the beginning? Well, I bought the car of a Melbourne doctor in 2001. He had two cars for sale, a 1912 three-speed London to Edinburgh and the 1913 four-speed London to Edinburgh. The four-speed models they called, and they gave an extra word to, the London to Edinburgh Continental. And so because it was a slightly rarer car, I took the 1913 model and I had a, 19, a very nice 1924 Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost Hooper Laundrelet and I traded that in to get this rather rare London to Edinburgh Continentals. That was 2001, and then I decided to do a full restoration. To me, the car was extremely rare, and a number of people overseas had tried to get it, but they didn't offer as much as I did, fortunately, and so I secured, I decided to do a long restoration, and it took 15 years. I didn't expect, I didn't expect it to take 15, I thought maybe 10, but unfortunately, a rather expensive exercise, and so I had to do it within my budget. And you're still married to your lovely wife. Yeah, exactly. I've had old cars all of my life. I've restored, I, I restored a 1903 Maxim, which was the only one in the world. That uh, was a major job. And I took that to the London to Brighton Rally in 1996 and 97. And before that, I restored a 1910 SCAT, or S-C-A-T, Societa Serrano Automobili Torino, a rather rare Italian car, and I took that with my children to the 1980 Colton Jubilee Rally of the Veteran Car Club from Edinburgh to London, 10-day event. I've, I have had a bit of a history in restoring cars, veteran cars, over a long period. She knew what she was getting. <laughs> well, look, it's a fascinating world. We've met some very interesting people uh, along the way, and I've been on some wonderful events around the world, met some interesting people, and... It's opened a lot of doors for me in terms of, you know, the old car world. Oh, it's lovely, and you've done us great service too. Now, it was a time, it was luxury, of course, Rolls-Royce, but there was also a thing where you were close to the mechanics. Taking your 1913 Rolls, how do you start it? Well, see, a lot of the guys today who restore these cars put a starter motor on them. They didn't receive a starter motor, really, until the post-war years. But my car, like any standard Silver Ghost, has dual ignition, has trembler coil coil ignition, and also magneto. The trembler coil is only good for starting up to about 600 RPM. So it's a standby uh, ignition system. And so, and the magneto is for running. So uh, very difficult to start them on magneto. You've got to be very careful. You don't break your arm because they, you know, they can kick back. On trembler coil, there's less chance of that happening. So you always start it on the trembler coil. So the coil is the coil is producing a spark, continuous spark, and the distributor, like a modern car, just taps the spark when it needs it. And so what I do is I prime the car, I turn the petrol on, pump up. You first have to pump up two pounds of pressure on the fuel pressure pump by hand and then it has a mechanical pump that takes over from there. And then you flood the carburetor, pull the car over, make sure that you, you, your ignition system is retarded, then pull over and put it on full rich in terms of mixture, flood the carburetor and then pull it over two or three times. And then invariably, when you turn the switch on and the trembler coil is, is providing the spark, if 
one or two of the cylinders have stopped on a compression stroke, it'll fire immediately. Now it's been, I have to say, as my engine is being used a little bit more, the compression's coming up, it's starting a lot more on the uh, on the trembler coil these days. So generally, it used to be when I first had it, I first got it back from the restorer, it didn't start so well on the switch, but now it starts on the switch even when it's cold. See, it's amazing, isn't it? Because I see you crank it, yes, but then nothing happens, and then you walk around to the steering wheel <laughs> and do something. Turn the spark on, turn the trembler coil on. And so, you know, and there's less chance of you hurting your arm too doing that. Oh, look, I could have put a starter motor on it, but I'm a bit of a stickler for authenticity. And, and plus the fact, starting your car with a handle like that is a little bit special and it's nice for kids and and anyone who's not converse with with old cars it's it's nice for them to see how a car used to start i totally support the idea of authenticity particularly if you keep cranking it (laughs) yeah well there's a way to do it i mean i see guys cranking cars and they crank with their back what you need to do is to try and get your back vertical and then use your body weight to pull the handle over so you're not trying for speed. All you're trying to do is to suck fuel into the engine through the intake manifold from the carburetor. So you're, you, you lean on the handle and sort of pull it over compression. If you try and pull it up vertically and put stress on your back, well, that's when you'll hurt yourself. Do you have to give it some choke? Uh, only flood. I flood. I usually flood the carburetor and, um, and then put it on. There's a mixture control on the steering column. Uh, I put that on full rich. Then as soon as it starts, and I also actually put a penny. I don't know whether I showed you the other day, but I have two pennies, a 1913 penny, an Australian one, and I have an English 1913 penny a friend, an English friend gave me. And I put that one of those under the starting jet in the carburetor, which just induces a little bit more fuel into the intake manifold. So... Uh, as soon as the car starts, you pull a penny out, of course. And, of course, it is a 1913 penny. Yeah, very important that it's a correct age. <laughs> yeah. I love your authenticity. The, the comfort features, where do I put my umbrella? <laughs> well, I, I've had an umbrella stand made for the car. I had one on my 1903 Maxim, and funnily enough, there used to be a gentleman on Parramatta Road, on Tavernus Hill, Parramatta Road, who used to make umbrella stands and, and do wicker work for cars. And, of course, this would have been 50, 60 years ago. And he used to put his son out on the curb. And when the car would pull up, the customer would pull up, the son would run in and tell his father what car it was. If it was a Packard and a Rolls-Royce, he'd adjust the price accordingly. It was a Model T Ford. He discounted it, of course. So I finally, I tracked that gentleman down who was 88 and he made me a basket for my 1903 car. That's going back over 20 years ago. But this time I had real trouble finding someone who could uh, basket weave an umbrella stand and I finally found a guy in Adelaide, calls himself the Wicker Man, Actually, he said, come to me to get a good caning, which I thought was rather funny. But anyway, I uh, I rang him up and he said, yes, I can make you one of those. And he said, as a matter of fact, at the moment, I'm making a, a seat, uh, an aircraft seat for a 1914 Sopwith Camel. 
I'm making a cane aero seat. So, you know, he's got a real calling for this type of early work. I would be concerned about the chauffeur fanging the car when you were not in it. I, I know you won't have a chauffeur, but how could I tell whether he has been a bit of a hoon? <laughs> oh, well, the speedometer, the, the car has what's called an Elliott speedometer. Now, it's one of the rarest things on the car, and I don't like to talk about price with these things, but they are very, very collectible uh, they bring $25,000 today and that's if you can find one a friend of mine actually fluked one would you believe in a Katoomba antique shop for $20 but they are very valuable today and very very sought after and I managed to get one and but it was a little it was rather special one because it has a key and there's a separate needle when the speedo uh, under speed, as the speedo needle comes up, 20, 30, 40, 50, it drags another needle up with it. And that needle actually has got some sort of retainer. And when it gets to a certain point where you speed, say you do, say you do 50 miles an hour, the second needle will stop at 50 miles an hour and won't come back when you stop. So the only way to get it back is to release it with the key. And that was the it was the speedo was designed for for owners who wanted to check on their chauffeur to make sure they weren't you know speeding when he wasn't in the car. <laughs> he could go and uh, you know check check the second needle and just see where it had stopped. And uh, I suppose the the chauffeur was chastened if he if he'd been misbehaving. It's taken over a hundred years or so for us to do that in an electronic way. Isn't it wonderful that it was done back then? Now, some modern sports cars, they have a switch and it makes the exhaust sound louder. Yes. Is there anything as crass as that in your roles? <laughs> well, look, for the Australian market, knowing um, you know that we had wide open places, the car has a cutout on it, on the exhaust, a foot-operated foot cutout, which you you pull a lever back with your heel and it opens a straight-through cutout on the exhaust. Um, and um, But, however, there's, a, there's a, a plate, a little plate, aluminium plate engraved around the lever which says not to be used in Great Britain. And obviously, you know, it would have been frowned on if you... Uh, in England if you use such a device. But for the colonies, anything was possible. For the colonies, yes, our wide <laughs> open spaces. <laughs> <laughs> and now it had a four-speed gearbox which helped it get up hills. How can you tell what the angle, what the gradient is? Oh, well, you see, the cars that, the, the cars that Radley used in the Austrian Alpine trial, and he went in the three trials he went in 1912 where he failed as i said 1913 he came first and uh, the other two factory cars came second and third and then he went in the 1914 event as well and won that but they were all fitted with a tapley gradient meter and it tells you the incline or decline uh, of of the landscape and because it was a you know austrian alpine passes and it was up through slovenia and some very steep country around that neck of the woods they fitted this tapley gradient meter and i'd been after one i've been after one for 11 years and i finally through an enthusiast down in victoria last year i was talking to him and he said oh david he says as a matter of fact i've got a couple of those and i said well look there's two types my car is 1913 
I need the earlier type, which shows a patent date of 1910, to be correct, because the other one has got a patent date of 1921, so it would be seen as being fitted too late. So he said, I've got a 1910 one, and I'm quite happy to sell it. Well, I was, you know, over the moon. It's taken me 11 years to get that item. And that's much the thing with these early cars, David. It takes you some time, sometimes, to get the automobile to go with the correct car. Some time indeed. Uh, it just reflects, David, your passion, your patience, your perseverance. Oh, well, that's, that's part of the fun. That's part of the fun of it all too, you know. I mean, you know, you've got to be an enthusiast to uh, to like these cars. But, you know, I have a bit of a passion for Rolls-Royce. I mean, I loved Henry Royce's attitude towards engineering, you know, where, you know, excellence was, was you know, his hallmark and... Um, so I've always admired his engineering and you know his dedication to providing the very best. He wasn't necessarily wildly inventive, but rather that he just did it and did it particularly well. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he was a guy that he was absolutely... There was a bit of an obsession there in some ways. I mean, he worked... Sometimes he worked right through the night and without food and without... Um, looking after himself in terms of, of bodily habits. And, and that's one of the reasons why he supposedly ended up with kidney failure towards his end. Uh, that He had to go, you know, retire basically to the south of France because he stood so long at the lathe and just refused to go to the toilet and that sort of thing, you know. So, oh. I mean, you know, he, he was he was quite obsessed with, with um, producing what he considered to be the best car in the world. Now, the looks of your car is just stunning, absolutely stunning. And and perhaps most obvious is, what would you call them, the hubcaps? They're cone-shaped de- devices sticking out. It looks a little bit like it could be on a chariot in Ben-Hur. Was that the standard <laughs> ones? Oh, well, look, the car's fitted with optional wheel discs. I mean, three cars like mine came to Australia uh, with discs. They probably you know, weren't really well suited to uh, the colonies and to Australia because a lot of silver ghosts were bought in the early days in Australia by farmers because they'd made a lot of money on the sheep's back and uh, most pastoral companies had them. And But they you know, on a really rough dirt road, they probably got quite damaged and they probably didn't last that long. But I decided to make a set. A friend of mine in England had a car with them and I copied them. And I've only just recently fitted them. I had them made about eight years ago while the car was being restored. And I'd sort of forgotten about them in a sense. But then I put one on one day and it looked so good. I thought, oh, I'll put them all on. And and everybody's just raved about them. And, of course, on Sunday at Shannon's uh, Sydney Classic, they created a real, real interest. Everyone, you know, wanted to know about them. They weren't easy to make. Someone suggested to me that they would get they would create a noise while you went along the road. They'd get like a drumming noise, but they haven't. I, I fitted them up with some rubber where they connect onto the rims, and um, they've been perfect, actually. They're, they're marvellous. Hmm. And you can see photos of them on our Facebook site at Overdrive City, among other things. David, do you have an idea of how often and when you might display the vehicle? Oh, look, I'm going. We have a big uh, event. Next month, uh, I think it's Sunday the 15th of September, 
at uh, All British Day at the King's School. That's a really fabulous day. There, there's two or three thousand English cars, and uh, it's a fate and art show. The King's School. It's combined with King's School, and it's a really popular day. And if the weather's nice in springtime, it's a really lovely thing. I'm taking the car there. It was there two years ago uh, when I first finished it, and uh, I missed last year. The car was in Melbourne, but it's back this year, and I'm definitely an entry. But uh, there'll be other, you know, quite a few other Rolls Royces there on the day, and a lot of other English cars as well. It's a lovely day, and it's a huge number of cars, as you say, an incredible number of cars there. David, it has been just an absolute delight, and may I say I thank you from the bottom of my heart for allowing to sit in the passenger seat as you drove it around Eastern Creek Raceway on the display laps. I'd have to say I don't think my Royal Wave was quite up to standard. <laughs> uh, I, I have to say that my... My royal gear changing on a couple of occasions is a bit sloppy, but when I checked it later, I had a little bit of oil. They have a what's called a clutch stop, which helps you to uh, slow the gears in the gearbox so you can do a cleaner change, and I had oil on the disc. Every now and again, it can get a little bit oily, so it wasn't operating as well as it should, and so my gear changes were a little bit, little bit crunchy at times, but uh, anyway... I'm probably more conscious of that than you were. Oh, well, I had a car that didn't have synchro at one stage and it brought almost a tear to my eye in the nicest possible way of wonderful memories. <laughs> <laughs> David, thanks again. It's lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Likewise, David. Equally uh, enjoyable to chat. Thank you. And that's David Berthon, who has had restored a beautiful 1913 Rolls. It was on display and won the Concourse d'Elegance at the Shannon's Classic, held at the Sydney Motorsport Park at Eastern Creek. And I'm sure it will go on to many other highly lauded events and the lord, the great work that has been done with David Berthon and uh, all that he has had and, and all that he has given to the motoring world with things such as this.